everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the TMI podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and my co-host for today. I'm Alex Hamrick. We are officially on season two, which means that this season is all about well-being. And that means well-being research, well-being for PhD students, well-being all around. For today's episode, we have Jeff Gish who is an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida. We invited Jeff because he has a lot of research about entrepreneurship and sleep and how it helps their well-being. This research has been published in the Journal of Business Venturing and Entrepreneurship Theory and Practice. And Jeff also has experience about how to handle well-being as an entrepreneur himself, as he's already started numerous businesses in his life. So we welcome Jeff to today's special episode and can't wait to hear everything he has to say. So before we get started, we always start with a icebreaker question. With well-being, one of the places where I think we we could probably all agree that um, reality TV is probably the opposite of well-being. So our question for season two and the one for you, Jeff, what reality show would you be on? if you had to be on a reality show? That's the most pressure packed question. I I went through like what I might be asked and now you're asking this, which I'm not prepared for. And I don't watch that much reality TV and maybe reality TV could be good for well-being. I don't know. I mean, when I have watched reality TV, I've always said to myself, well, at least it's not that bad. (laughs) Like I may have troubles, but it's not as bad as what I'm watching. Um, I don't know. Reality TV. Is Shark Tank reality TV? You know, I... I, I had a, a business for seven years before pursuing a PhD and getting a research job, uh, but it was a trucking company. It wasn't like a highly innovative idea. So I, I think there's still some uh, unsowed entrepreneurial oats inside me that I think like, you know, pitching an idea on Shark Tank would be interesting. Um, and there's smaller, there's smaller instances of that with like startup weeks that happen. We just had one in Orlando uh, last week and that type of stuff is fun. So I think maybe something that had to do with entrepreneurship, but that's, that's kind of a cop out because we're on a entrepreneurship podcast. Um, I'm not sure you're catching me off guard there, but I think maybe Shark Tank would be uh, my really low hanging fruit answer. Maybe the uh, combo of the trucking uh, business you had and Shark Tank, you could do like ice road truckers where they have to pitch. Oh yeah. Okay. I was actually born in Alaska where they filmed that. Uh, where they filmed that uh, show, we could have a mashup of Ice Road Truckers and Shark Tank would be my reality show that I'd be on. I'd watch it. I'd watch it for sure. So I wanted to know a little bit of how you got interested in well-being research, specifically sleep. When I had my business, I was the type of person who said, I'll sleep when I die or sleep is for weaklings. And I, my business is so important uh, that I needed to work on it as much as I can and sleep only when necessary. Um, and so I let sleep suffer. And I knew that was probably not the best decision. Uh, but this research project that I, that I embarked on and was part of my dissertation um, enabled me to answer that question. Like, is it, a, is it really bad or is it better to hustle on the business and, and let sleep suffer? Um, and we answered some of those questions. Some of those questions, even for people who, like we have entrepreneurs in that sample that, uh, that, say that they, they don't need as much sleep. And so we measure, you know, we follow them for two weeks. And even if they don't get as much sleep, like let's, let's say, let's say they say they only need five hours of sleep. 
Um, we were able to show those entrepreneurs that even if you only, you say you only need five hours of sleep, you're still better at making decisions and spotting opportunities or coming up with ideas when you have six hours than when you have four. Um, and, and the, the uh, corollary of that is that you're better when you have six hours than you are when you have five. And so uh, you may be successful uh, without sleeping very much, but I would argue that that's despite the fact that you're not sleeping very much. You may be even more successful uh, if you get sufficient sleep and recover in that way. I um, spent a good chunk of time at University of Oregon developing those ideas. Um, and now I'm down in Orlando at University of Central Florida and able to continue to pursue those sleep ideas. I've still got some more irons in the fire on sleep, but uh, that research interest has evolved into uh, an interest in entrepreneurial well-being. Uh, so kind of taking a step back from that very specific recovery activity of sleep to other ways that entrepreneurs may recover. Right. No, that's very interesting. How do you think that might translate to a PhD student, for example, where we're needing to come up with ideas and seminar papers and dissertation topics? Do you think there's this um, takeaway that PhD students can use because we're going through a similar stress that entrepreneurs might be going through? Sure. Um, I, and absolutely, we had a lot of tongue-in-cheek conversations about how, uh, you know, we'd be emailing on the weekend, for example, or emailing in the middle of the night about the paper. Um, and I've got a, I've got co-authors that are are located around the world, and the irony is not lost on us when we're, you know, not practicing these recovery activities ourselves. But I mean, that kind of plays into a paper that I just wrote with a person, uh, with a couple of co-authors, one Amanda Williamson in New Zealand and the other Uta Stefan in, uh, in London. And we wrote an editorial for, the, for entrepreneurship theory and practice talking about recovery activities. And within there, we highlight a tension that exists for people who have autonomous careers. And so that's the reason I'm telling you about this is just because uh, when you have an autonomous career like entrepreneurship, but also like scholarship, when you're, you know, learning to be, uh, learning to be a scholar, an entrepreneurship scholar, uh, you have you have a lot of autonomy on what you do, when you do it, and uh, how you complete your work tasks. And so, in autonomous careers, Sabina Sonnentag, uh, who had, who who with Charlotte Fritz wrote the scale for recovery, um, she recently wrote a paper. I think it's 2018 on the recovery paradox. And she suggests that the people who have autonomous career and, and have high personal identification with their work, also analogous with scholars, uh, between scholars and entrepreneurs, um, those are the people who need to recover the most, but the paradox is that they find it the hardest to recover because they can't step away from the, from the work and detach. So uh, I think there's a lot of overlap between entrepreneurial careers and scholarly careers. To kind of add on to Alex's question, I was talking to an entrepreneur last week who made a comment about some saying that she had seen about you leave a 40 hour work week to become an entrepreneur, really just to work 80 to 90 hours just for yourself instead of someone else. And how it's kind of changed a little bit as her business has continued on and she works a little bit less than she did before. And I've heard similar stuff from faculty members from PhD to becoming a professor. 
Do you see a big change in that from moving from a PhD student slash candidate to an assistant professor role that you've been able to take on less and get more sleep and focus on your well-being? Or is it something you cognizantly had to make the decision of at some point, regardless of your stage? Yeah, I think they're, you know, the treadmill that we're on when we choose autonomous careers continues to move. Even if we experience successes, we still want to make things better. Uh, so that was true of me when I had my business. It's true of me now that I'm, I'm uh, performing research and, and teaching aspiring entrepreneurs. And so that, t- that stuff doesn't stop. Um, it, and it hasn't gotten better, even though I wish we keep making these deals with ourselves as scholars. Like, well, once I get the PhD, it'll be better. Or once I get that first year as an assistant professor in my belt, it'll be better. Or speaking not from experience, but forecasting out there, I, I say to myself all the time, once I get tenure, I'll feel so much better. We'll pursue different projects, but I, I don't anticipate this type of feeling stopping. I think that uh, people who, who select into these careers, uh, they want to, they aspire to do great things, however they define that. So I, I don't see it stopping. I mean, I, I but I see the, the recovery, I'll, I'll say this, the recovery paradox is very real in my life. And I think a lot of scholars find and a lot of entrepreneurs find that the recovery paradox is real in their life too. I've given this, um, I've given this talk, the talk of that paper, that journal business venturing paper for my dissertation. I give that talk to a group of angel investors and entrepreneurs. And in the cocktail hour that, that happened afterwards, I talked to a lot of people who are like, I, I get what you're saying. I know I need rest. It's just... I, I have to keep pushing and I can't stop myself. My mind won't calm down. So rest isn't really an option for me. And I said, I understand that, you know, I've been part of a hustle culture before. Um, and I feel like I'm still part of a hustle culture trying to do research. So I don't think that that, I don't think that stuff just stops, but I think we can be cognizant of what our sleep equation is and how much sleep we need and then choose to reserve really complex, deep level thinking and decision-making for those days when we have West rested well, or, or, you know, take the time to recover, take a walk in nature, um, practice, practice um, self-care before doing these things. And, and I think that's a more manageable prescription. If I were to get prescriptive, prescriptive about my research, that's a more manageable prescription than, Hey, get seven to nine hours, of, get seven to nine hours a night, because that's what the national sleep foundation recommends. I don't know if that, for someone who is experiencing the recovery paradox, I don't know if that's feasible suggestions to make, but I think it is, um, I think it's more plausible that we can encourage people to recover when they can and save those complex decisions for a time after they've recovered. That's really interesting. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, Jeff, is I, and this is probably anyone listening, this is probably not good advice. When I want time off from work, right? I find that in order to not feel guilty or feel like I should be doing work that I do other things that are productive, but just not on my work. So for example, last weekend, I decided I was going to reinstall, like put in new floors in the office. So something that keeps me busy, but isn't work. What tips do you have for PhD students on kind of things to do outside of work that aren't just all about research or all about teaching that can help them decompress or get out of that, but not feel guilt about not working. Huh. I, I don't know how to cause people to not feel guilt because I feel guilt myself. And it's, it's actually, 
harder for me to detach from this career than it was when I was self-employed, believe it or not. Um, just because I think you always can, there's always more that you can think about. There's always new ideas that you can come up with or a different way to analyze data that you're wrestling with. Um, or, you know, a different way to tackle a teaching challenge that's, that you've experienced and you want to overcome because uh, we all want to become better teachers. And I don't think you ever have a finish line for that. That's a, another treadmill that you're on. And, you know, some people become great teachers. Uh, I think I'm going to be a teacher in training for my whole career um, and hopefully it gets better. So I, I, I'm always thinking about how to, how to make things better, both in research and teaching. And of course, with my colleagues, when I, when I commit to service, that's the other, the third leg of the stool for a faculty member. Um, but what advice do I have for people to actually disconnect? I, well, let's just go full blown with the analogy between entrepreneurship and uh, the academic life. And in that paper with Amanda Williamson and Uta Stefan in Entrepreneurship Theory and Practice, we talk about three different ways that you can recover. Uh, so these seem like, when you ask me that question, Ashley, it makes me think about recovery activities that people could participate in. And we have a whole menu of recovery activities uh, that, that students and uh, academics, scholars can participate in, just like entrepreneurs could participate in. Uh, they come under three different categories. The three categories are, they're the three R's. So we're trying to make, a, make this really digestible and packageable for um, dissemination. Um, so the three R's are respite, reappraisal, and regimen. Respite is taking a break. This could be like going and socializing with friends about non-work topics. They could be work friends, but hopefully you're talking about non-work topics. Otherwise, you're not disengaging or de detaching from work. Um, walks in nature are a really interesting uh, category. There's some people doing interesting work on, um, on being exposed to nature and how that influences organizational employees. And I think entrepreneurship research would benefit from that too. Uh, but PhD students could, could benefit from uh, experiencing nature. And of course, we're headed into the winter season where it might be harder and harder to get outside unless you're in Florida. So you should come work down here. Um, the, so it's, I, I just spent a sweaty summer. So I have to, like, it's totally uncomfortable down here in the summertime and we're getting into the good weather now. So I have to brag when I can because people make fun of me for being sweaty all summer. So taking a walk in nature, uh, socializing, listening to music is a good way to do that. Um, hopefully music that you're not listening to while you're working so that it doesn't cue you to start thinking about working more practicing mindfulness. Those are, those are things that are respite, like detaching from work and starting the recovery activity. Okay. So that's, that's the respite. The first R the second R is reappraisal. So changing the way that you think about things, you know, we talked about feeling guilt when we take a break, but if you, there are techniques that you can practice in order to, to um, diminish that guilt or, while you're working, you can optimize the way that you look at stress. There's research on uh, interpreting stress as a hindrance or as a challenge. And if you're looking at it as a challenge, you have much better well-being outcomes than you do when you're looking at it as a, as a hindrance, perhaps obviously, but sometimes we don't take the time to think about how are we framing our stress. Uh, but, but more specifically to recovery activities, um, I've, I've got a, a research project happening right now with, and maybe we'll talk about that after I'm done explaining the three R's, but uh, we are going to implement a cognitive behavioral therapy intervention with a set of entrepreneurs. So we, we may have time to talk about that, uh, but the cognitive behavioral therapy helps you change your cognitions and behaviors away from the way that they used to be to a new framing. Um, so for example, if you're always feeling guilt, 
for recovering or detaching from work and not doing work, cognitive behavioral therapy can help you reframe that guilt and start thinking about, well, I'm feeling really good. I'm making myself a better scholar when I detach from work because I need this recovery in order to be at peak performance when I come back to the work. Okay, so that's that's a prime example of reappraisal, cognitive behavioral therapy or optimizing your stress. And then the last one that I that I want to explain is the regimen. So, uh, the, I mean, you can probably say that like regimen is just adding structure to those first two, but you can say that there's overlap. Okay, if you're adding regimen, you're just doing respite and reappraisal. But the important part about respite is making this part of your habitual uh, daily process. And so, uh, for example, conducting exercise is something that requires regimen. Um, and it's doing exercise usually causes us to detach from work too. Although there's times where I, I will continue grinding on the front end of a paper as I'm, you know, going out for a run, I'll keep thinking about like, how can I frame this? Or, uh, what is the, what is the, the paragraph that I need to write to be able to, um, set the hook in this paper. And I do that sometimes when I'm exercising, but I'm talking about actually, uh, detaching from work and, you know, setting micro breaks that are, uh, time where you stand up from your desk, if you're at work and, and walk, if you could get to a natural setting, that's even better. Uh, but just making sure that it's not a one-off activity. That's what the regimen, that third R, the regimen is about is, is making sure that you, um, commit to this and build up your health and well-being over time, as opposed to just feeling like there's, there's a hack that I can do to fix, uh, what ails me. I think we definitely need to follow up on the cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy research you have going on. I mean, that is very interesting to me. And a lot of people can use this to help with things like anxiety or other things that are, are happening. So could you tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing with that kind of research? Yeah, I I obviously put a shameless plug in there to come back to this. So thanks, Alex, for asking that question. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about it, though. Uh, it's a continuation of that editorial that I that I mentioned. So this is work that I'm doing with Amanda Williamson and Uta Stefan, and one of my former doc students here that ended up getting a job at Pepperdine out on the West Coast. Uh, who, who her office overlooks the beach, and I'm I'm envious of her view that she has. But she she is out in California. She has family out there, and uh, we started talking about this before she left. So this is our first year there. And we, or I was just at a conference um, and I, I met a venture capitalist who has a venture capital firm called Alpha Bridge in San Francisco. And this venture capital firm, one of the stipulations of making an investment in an entrepreneur is that they go through well-being training. And I said, that's interesting. Like you, you are listening to what the research is saying. And this, and this person was like, absolutely. That's why I'm at this conference. And uh, it shouldn't be surprising that we're doing this, but it is, they are in the minority of venture capitalists. I mean, many venture capitalists want the entrepreneurs to be grinding on their work, but this, these guys are different. And I wanted to get to know them. Uh, so in a follow-on conversation, I asked, you know, how do you, how do you know whether these, uh, you know, the, the well-being training is working? And he's like, well, that's a tr- tricky question. It's hard to measure that stuff. Um, but one of the founding partners also has a PhD and she's a psychologist and uh, an IO psychologist, and she's interested in studying some of that. And so I, I got in touch with her and we started talking. She has, she actually founded the coaching company that 
provides the well-being training. And so through her company um, and the coaches that she employs, we are we have co-created an intervention with them. So that menu of activities that I just uh, shared with you, Ashley, uh, we served that to the coaches and said, hey, here's the stuff that we can see making a difference for entrepreneurs. Let's talk about which, which type of intervention you would like to implement. And so we've co-created this intervention with their set of coaches that provide the well-being training. And they liked the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so then I was like, okay, great. Cognitive behavioral therapy it is. Let's figure out how to do that. And it turns out that there's an app for that. And uh, so we're using an app called Daylight that uh, is made by Big Health. Who It's like a, they're in London and also in the Bay Area. Um, and they're going to let us use their app uh, to de- deploy a cognitive behavioral therapy intervention with these entrepreneurs. And it'll be a, a randomized controlled trial so that we can establish causality. Uh, it's, it's a waitlist controlled trial so that everyone will get to use the app eventually after the study period. Those in the control group will be uh, handed over access to the app. Um, but so all these pieces are kind of coalescing into this research project that I'm super excited about. And we're, we're just getting it through ethics approval here through our IRB. And uh, once we do that, we'll pre-register the study and then go about deploying the intervention to see if cognitive behavioral therapy helps well-being outcomes uh, and, and a other host of outcomes that uh, I won't mention here. But uh, yeah, that's the idea behind the research. And uh, you know, look for that on your radar in the, coming, in the coming months or maybe years, depending on how long it takes to get it published. Oh, that's really that's really cool stuff. Thank you for sharing. Amanda's doing some her stuff on disappointment. I also think is interesting and and how these entrepreneurs overcome feelings of disappointment. Since there's so many instances in their careers where they may experience something that even if it's not exactly a firm failure, that could create a feeling of disappointment. Same with us as PhD students or for faculty when you have um rejections from journals but can you think of ways that you know we hear all the time oh if you get a rejection to put it aside and come back to it or you know some disappointing thing happens do you have advice on ways that phd students or faculty could maybe approach situations where they might be feeling disappointment or failure even though it may not be a failure that can help them overcome that and not affect their well-being as much hmm Yeah. I mean, it's an uncertain career, just like entrepreneurs operate in uncertain environments on, you know, like figuring out what to do next. So I, I can appreciate that, you know, those feelings of uncertainty, both being self-employed and uh, in the publication process. So let's just talk specifically about the publication process because I've had more disappointments than I've had successes. And I think that's true of everyone. And, um, I think we could normalize talking about getting rejected as opposed to pretending like everything soars through for us. I mean, I think there are a few unique individuals who are, who just won't send anything out until it's ready and, and they publish at a greater clip than I do. Um, but I think for the most part, people experience more rejection than they do acceptances at journals. And so you've got to figure out a way to deal with that disappointment. So I appreciate the question. Um, one of the things that I that I have uh, come to appreciate in this uncertain career is controlling what I can. And I cannot control what review reviewers reactions to what I write. Uh, I can control what I write, uh, but I can't control their reactions. I can't control that, uh, 
that dichotomous decision of either rejection or uh, revise and resubmit. So what I can control, and this is coming from a paper that I read in Journal of Organizational Behavior, uh, my advisor turned me on to it, and I'll turn your listeners on to it. It's Hollenbeck and Manor, 2007. And it talks about how even though there's some randomness and uncertainty um, in a stochastic process like peer review, true scores can emerge if you focus on um, the things that you can control. And those two things that they talk about in that paper are activity and resilience. So activity is uh, continuing to write, uh, continuing to, to produce new manuscripts that go under review. Resiliency is to say, hey, those reviewers had some critical things to say about my paper, but I'm not going to throw it in the trash can. I'm going to make it better based on their feedback. And they're, they're, if that wasn't the home for this paper, then I can find a home for it somewhere else. So I can control how active I stay in my work and I can control how resilient I am to a certain extent. I mean, I could be, I could also just be crazy and expecting different results from the same, uh, same behavior. And that that's, you know, the definition of insanity, but I think that, you know, you're having other people who are engaging with your work. They have taken the time to read it. You may not agree with everything they read, but there's probably something you can take out of there to make the paper better. And so even if you're, uh, the most finicky person and hate reviews, there's something in that you can make your paper better with and before you send it out to another journal. And so listening to the reactions to your, um, to your paper is something that we all have trouble doing, but I think we would do good to, you know, set it up, read it once, set it aside, let the affective tone melt away so that you can come to it with a more um, rational level-headed view, make the paper better and get it under review again. Now I talked about true scores and that they also talk about true scores in that paper. That's something that we have less control over, but we can true score refers to your actual capabilities as a researcher. Um, and of course a higher true score means that you'll your more activity and resilience from those folks will yield better results. Um, but you can get better at that. I mean, doctoral students are doing that. They're learning how to become a better researcher. And you mentioned Amanda's work on disappointment and she, her and I met and published our first paper when we were still in graduate school. And we were both like investigating new methods and, and talking about methods and figuring out how we can answer the research questions that we have. And that is a really life-giving thing. So if you can find a partner that uh, is, uh, has, where you can commiserate with, like we still, you know, when I saw her publish that paper, I was like, Hey, nice work. And when she sees me publish a paper, she says the same thing to me. Um, and we still work together. So, you know, having a, a partner that you can commiserate with somebody who specifically understands the things that you're going through can help. Um, but investigating new methods is a way to improve your true score. Uh, and so if you can, if you can figure out, you know, you're going to become a better writer just by doing that activity. Uh, so, you know, keeping your activity and resilience up will also improve your true score. But if you can intentionally seek out new methods, look for new collaborators that you might be able to learn from all of those things, uh, and listen to your advisor's feedback. That's something I should say to doc students too. Um, it, it was really hard for me to not be defensive when I got feedback, uh, just because I think, you know, we, I'm not sure how much I want to say about this, uh, but my, my prior experience with writing before I came to getting a PhD was maybe you do a rough draft, maybe you revise it once, you turn it in, you get a good grade and you move on. Like all done, I'm finished now. That is not how the writing process works for scholars. I mean, you might write something 20 times before 
you even submit it for peer review, right? Just the, the iterative process of writing uh, wasn't something that I was ready for. And so I would get defensive, but now, um, well, it's still something that I work on, but I'm better at it now. I think that's made me a better researcher because I can take feedback from someone who cares uh, about the outcomes that I have, uh, whether that be my advisors or grad student or now colleagues that I talk to about these papers or co-authors, I can take that advice and uh, I don't have to have these affective reaction, you know, these, these moody emotional reactions to uh, things that people are saying to me and I can improve the paper. Uh, and it, that helps me improve my true score. So, um, and of course, you know, focusing on what you can, what you can control to, this is a really long way to answer to your question, actually, but focusing on what you can control, that's resiliency and activity levels, um, and then keep becoming a better researcher, which is a longer play, but all of those efforts should pay off in the end and hopefully get you more wins than losses. Um, but I think everybody through their entire career, just because we're submitting to competitive, the peer review process is competitive. Many of the journals we submit to have less than a 10% acceptance rate. And so, you know, you're just going to get a lot of no's. And uh, you've, if we could also, like I said earlier, normalize that, um, normalize that process of rejection, like normalize talking about rejection and not be so guarded with our, our discussions and feelings with other scholars, um, I think it can help people understand, well, I'm not going through this alone and I can commiserate with other people who have had similar experiences. The wrong thing to do would be to, to hole up and stop writing or hole up and, uh, you know, feel like, I, well, this paper's garbage. I need to start on a new project and not pursue this paper anymore. That's not resilient and, and stop, stopping writing is not active. And so those are the people that I, that I think end up leading the career because they don't feel like, um, and it may not be because of true score, by the way, it may just be because, uh, because of the agony of defeat, as you mentioned, Ashley. So your last question, we end every episode. Every season, we do a different icebreaker question, uh, but every episode, we have a, the same exact closing question. And that question is, if you could give yourself advice, knowing what you know now, but give it to yourself when you started your PhD, what would have been the advice you would have given yourself? Oh, you guys ask hard questions when they're off the cuff. I, I think the advice I would give myself as an aspiring PhD student is the one popped into my head that I tell incoming students, uh, both when I was a, a more senior PhD student and getting ready to go on the job market. And now when we have students here at UCF, get a reference manager tool. I don't care which tool that is, but get it. Like I, I particularly when we deal with rejections and we're reformatting references and things like that, I, I did not do that until maybe the second year of the program. And so I had a whole bunch of papers stored in, in file folders that I maybe could find. And this, this is after only one year of PhD studies. It would be way worse now if I were still trying to organize this. But if you get a reference manager tool, uh, I use EndNote, but you could use you know, uh, Mendeley or uh, there, there are other products that uh, the names of them are slipping my mind right now. Do you guys use reference manager tools? Which ones do you use? Zotero. That's okay. I was the, the Z one was on the tip of my tongue. Um, so, first of all, it gives you a way to organize papers, which is something that we need to do as scholars. But I think even more importantly, if you get rejected at a journal and they have a specific format for that journal, 
you can, with the click of a button, change all of those references to next journal that you submit to formatting, um, which is like the, that was the, the uh, killer application for getting reference manager software for me. I submitted my first paper and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm copying and pasting and bolding and italicizing and all kinds of things that I just didn't want to, I didn't feel like that was worth my time. And I'm here to tell you now that it doesn't, you don't have to spend time on that. Like get a reference manager software. And, and I'm glad to hear that y'all have it. Um, hopefully the students listening to this would do that too. But if I could go back to my um, just accepted to a PhD program, Jeff, I would say, Jeff, go get EndNote now, even if you have to pay for it. But there are free versions too. I think Zotero is free, right? Yeah, or, or a paper pile is another one. So figure out what you want to use and, and go to work doing that. Thank you for being on here. It was really nice to have you. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, great to meet you both. So again, a big thanks to Jeff for being on this episode with us. We really loved hearing about all of his tips for better sleep, better well-being, and better just general handling of disappointment and failure. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this season is all about well-being, so stay tuned for our next two episodes of the season with our different guests and different topics, of course. If you have any feedback, questions to submit to guests, or recommendations for future episodes, please be sure to send it to our email, which is t-m-i-e-n-t-p-o-d at gmail.com, or you could send it via our social media channels. We look forward to hearing from you next time and reading all of your questions that you have. Thanks for listening and goodbye.